Amen, amen. All right, we are on part eight of the, the book of Ephesians, where we're going to now look at chapter four, the first 16 verses. And uh, just, I'll just confess on the front end, there's way more content in here than I could cover in an hour. So this is going to be a bit of an overview of these passages, which gives you a great opportunity. Do you know I'm not the only one that's supposed to study the Bible? Gives you an awesome opportunity. I just put a nice outline in front of you. Gave you a whole path to study all week. You could just look at these verses and allow the Lord to speak to you. So I'm reading the menu, and you guys can have a meal later on this week. That's what we're going to do today. All right, so let's look at the outline here. Here's where we're at. Uh, Ephesians 4, this marks a turning point in, in the entire book of Ephesians. So the first three chapters, what Paul's doing is he's unpacking critical spiritual truths of the gospel, the nature and the knowledge of God, the, the, uh, the church's role and commission and mandate, and our reconciliation between us and God and us and one another. He's explaining all these powerful spiritual truths. And, and he ends it with, a, obviously, the, the Ephesians 3 prayer, which we talked about last week, that we would all come to a fullness in love. And that really is our portion, isn't it? To live our whole lives rooted and grounded in love with everything on the inside and everything that comes out of us being manifest through, through the love of God. That, that's our portion. We live alive and overwhelmed with the knowledge of his affections and then pass that to others through everything, through every uh, relationship and everything we do in life. So then what Paul's going to do now in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is he's going to show us what walking in the fullness of love, what it actually looks like. And so uh, that's where the book transitions. And, and so this is really, really important that we understand that love is not just, oh, God loves me and I love him, and that's it. But the outflow of love, it, it, there's a theater in which that, that takes place, that drama of love working in us and through us. And the theater that that takes place in, it's, it's all of our relationships, everybody that we come in contact with. And, and I would say the most specific theater, the, the most central theater that, that we walk out, the, the truth of the gospel and the revelation of love uh, that God has poured into us, the place that we mostly manifest that is the people we're around the most, our families. Amen. And so the, the deal is, and I like to say this, who you are with your family, who you are at home, who you are with your spouse, your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, who you are in that theater is really who you are. And uh, almost anybody can look good in front of people for an hour or two at a time. You can hold your tongue. You can say glory to God. Hallelujah. How you doing, brother? Amen. And you can smile all nice. But man, when you're with somebody all the time, like marriage, I mean, there's just an unveiling of really who you are that happens in that place that gets down to the nitty gritty, doesn't it? And so that's what Paul's dealing with. It's, he's going to talk about marriage in chapter 5, uh, and, and, and interestingly enough, he goes right into the spiritual warfare aspect of our life in chapter 6, and how I think those are linked. <laughs> but 4, he's going to walk us through what 
it looks like to, to live in the fullness of love. And, and in verse 1, he calls it walking worthy of the Lord. Isn't that a huge phrase? What does it look like to walk worthy of the Lord? And I mean, right there, right there, I know I'm defeated. Because I know that in me, I can't walk worthy of the Lord unless the Lord does something to me to enable me to walk worthy. Isn't that right? And so this is a product of the grace of God. This is a product of the love of God, the activity of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. Like he said, taking from the riches of his glory to strengthen us with might in in our inner man by his spirit. And then we're able to walk worthy of the Lord. And so let's just kind of get into what this even means. You know, I I say this in C, the, the reason why Paul makes this delineation is because this is a critical, critical truth of the gospel, that the gospel and, and really Christianity, it's not just this vertical relationship. And I know we've said this before, but I, wanna, I just want to say it clearest, uh, clearly to us again, that it's not just this vertical relationship between us and God. So often we can just say, well, you know, that's just between me and the Lord. You know, that's just me and the Lord. And, uh, and funny, sometimes I'll ask people, so, so tell me about, you know, where do you go to church? Or, oh, 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 oh I, don't, I don't do any of that. It's just between me and the Lord. And, I'm, and I just kind of think, well, you probably need to read the Bible because the Bible isn't just about you and the Lord. There is a much broader expression of God's working in you than just between you and the Lord. And, and so there's this horizontal expression, and that's between us and us. And when the gospel takes root inside of us, and and Christianity actually becomes our life, Jesus becomes our life, then there is this horizontal expression that plays out in in every uh, facet of our lives. And, And so that's the key, is that understanding that the gospel is not simply vertical, it's vertical with horizontal uh, manifestation and implications. And, And, you know, that seems obvious, but a lot of times we just think it's my personal relationship with Jesus, right? But my personal relationship with Jesus equals Jesus loves everyone and he's called me to love them too, which then trans, you know, translates into my relationship with everyone else. And so if those two are disconnected in us, then we need to reconnect them because in Christ they're connected. Does that make sense? And so this is what Paul is emphasizing here, that it's a vertical relationship with horizontal implications. And so our Christianity should fully influence and impact all of our relationships with others. And in D, I just mentioned that there's several, several key themes that are, that are uh, covered here. Unity in the body of Christ, gifts of God's grace, fivefold ministry, maturity in love, and growth of the body. And the truth is, if I were to do a uh, full explanation of it, it would probably take me 10 hours to get through these 17 verses. There's that much there. I mean, as soon as you say apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, that's five hours, all right? So, so we're, we're going to do those in five minutes today. We'll have you out in 45 minutes, 50 if I get long-winded. Praise God. All right. Roman numeral two, <clears throat> this part, these first few verses, uh, one through six, we're going to call it walking worthy of the Lord. And that's really what this whole passage is about, is how do we walk worthy of the Lord? Let's just read it together. Verse 1, 
says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen. So all these points that he's unpacking are all interrelated. They all connect to one another. Let's just walk through it a little bit. So first he says, therefore, obviously he's referencing, referencing the, the previous passage where he says, I'm praying that you'd walk in the fullness of love, height, the width, the depth, and length, and know the love of God, uh, love of Christ which passes knowledge. So he goes, therefore, because I'm praying for that, he goes, I, the prisoner of the Lord, he goes, I, I'm, I'm commanding you, I'm beseeching you, walk worthy of the calling, therefore. Walk this out. Walk this love life out. And so it's interesting to me, a couple points that I want to pull out. He calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. That's so interesting to me because God isn't the one that's got him in jail. Nero is. Caesar is. In other words, it wasn't God that arrested him. It was, it was Rome. He's in a Roman jail. But in Paul's mind, he looks at it and says, no, actually, it's the Lord's doing. And here's the thing that's true about Paul when you look at Paul. He identifies himself. And he doesn't use exactly that phrase. But before he ever went to jail, he thinks of himself as the prisoner of the Lord. Because he calls himself a bondservant of the Lord, which is essentially a slave of the Lord. And then when he gets put in jail, he goes, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, or a prisoner for the Lord. Or it's by the Lord's doing that I am what I am in the grace of God. And and here's the point I actually want to make about this. Here's Paul in prison. He's gifted, he's talented, he's anointed. I mean, he's this, I mean, legitimate apostle, but he's content as a prisoner of the Lord. And there's something about no matter what station you have in life, no matter whether you're abounding or whether you're being abased, that if you see yourself as the prisoner of the Lord, contentment will fill your soul. You'll be satisfied with being God's guy or God's girl no matter where you are. Sometimes in my private prayer, I'll just be a little vulnerable. I just, I just, I just say, Lord, I'm your boy. That's all I am. It's all I want to be. Just let, me, just let me be your boy today, and I'll just do whatever it is that's on your heart. And that is a place of tenderness and intimacy that we all can share if we'll just all see ourselves as prisoners of the Lord. You know, Paul said it this way. He goes, I am not my own. I'm bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I've been been bought. He owns me. I'm the prisoner of the Lord. I just love that phrase. And and I think I just I just pray that, (laughs) that we'd all think that way. We're grateful for you know freedoms that we have in America, but there's something about being a prisoner of the Lord, constrained and caught by God. And, and I love how Paul presents himself like that. Amen. 
And then he says this, he goes, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now here's the deal. This you, the calling with which you were called, is a plural you. It's all of us. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Don't do the Western entrepreneurial thing going, I've got my calling that I'm supposed to walk worthy of. That is not it at all. It's who we are called to be together in Christ. This is about us being called as a people together unto a singular calling, which is ultimately the Lord's calling. And that's what he's been dealing with throughout the first three chapters, that there is a hope of our calling that we have in Jesus, and it's Jesus' ultimate uh, exaltation over heaven and earth. And he says, now, in light of love, let's walk worthy of that. Let's, let's walk this thing out. Let's all do this together. Let's get a, a worthy walk, one that shows that we're, we're a part of Jesus' plan, that we're walking out this gospel reality, that love is taking root in us. And so then he gives this list. He says, with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And those are supporting elements to what it looks like to walk worthy. So let's just look at it for a second. Because this is where your toes get injured. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness, you could say humility. Other translations translate that word humility. Gentleness. Other translations use the term meekness, but I think gentleness actually does, does the word justice there. Long-suffering, that's patience. Bearing with one another, that's bearing with one another. <laughs> Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. So here's the obvious point. We've been talking about the reconciliation between God and us and then us and one another, and he explains that really well in, in, in chapter two, and then he double stitches it in chapter three and then calls us to walk in love in light of all of that. And so we go, right, I'm just going to walk in love. Now, now, what does that look like? He goes, well, here's what it's going to look like. You're going to have to be humble. You're going to have to be gentle and meek. You're going to have to be patient with each other. You're going to have to bear with one another a long time. <laughs> Love bears long. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. You're going to have to be diligent, endeavor to keep unity together. Why is he saying all that to us? The point is because it's going to be challenging. Right? He's not telling us to be humble because humility would be a nice little sprinkle on top of the love package. He's telling us to be humble because the love manifests, expresses itself in humility, but the point is we're going to need humility to get along. We're going to need to be gentle to get along. I'm preaching so much better than y'all are amen right now. It's okay. I forgive you. We're going to need to bear with one another to do this thing. I, uh, you know, I did what, what preachers do sometimes. I preach the, 
messages on love last week, and man, just felt the Lord went home and got in a fight with my wife, glory to God. And uh, I already was studying Ephesians 4 to, you know, for this week. Here I am, I'm coasting off of love, fullness of love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, bear with one another long. And then we get in this little argument, and I'm just like, man, she's this and that, and she's got to get right. And I just, Lord, you know you're on my team. I open the Bible with all lowliness and gentleness, long suffering, bearing with one another, endeavor to keep the unity. Busted, right? Just nailed. I go, I mean, I was here. I go, honey, I'm so sorry. I was not gentle. I was not patient. I was not bearing with you. Please forgive me. I'm in the wrong. I'm, I'm biblically clearly convicted and wrong, and I need to repent. And that's ultimately what love looks like, gang. Love doesn't mean you get it right every time. Love just means you're endeavoring to walk in what love looks like until it becomes natural in you. Here's what I found. Love says I'm sorry a lot. And then after a while, you don't have to say I'm sorry a lot because you're not as messed up as you used to be. You're retraining your heart that being gentle and being kind and being humble is actually better. It's actually better. It's actually what love looks like. And, and so I just was, I was just personally uh, challenged and convicted and, and thinking about different things that sort of stir me up, rile me up. Am I lowly about them? Am I humble? Well, when I express myself and something's got me agitated, am I gentle about it? And, you know, some of you guys do gentle real well because it's kind of part of your personality. I'm not sure God put any gentle in this personality. It's just, it's had to all get worked in, you know, because I'm passionate. It's on or off. Gentle is like a new language for me. And so I go, God, I want to be gentle. You're gentle. You're gentle with me. Your gentleness is what makes me great. You're tender with me. You're humble with me, God. You you, you don't just smash me every time I step out of line. Oh, this is how you act towards me because you love me. Oh, this is how I'm supposed to act towards everyone else. And the point, guys, is this, that these concepts of lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, or patience, they're supposed to be inherent to what it means to walk in love, to just what it means to be a Christian. And what's interesting is you can be real long-suffering if you're only dealing with yourself. It's easy to be tender if you're only dealing with yourself and humble. I mean, if that's just me, I'm so humble. I don't have anybody else to not be humble with. But that's the whole point is that this thing called Christianity, this thing called the gospel, is all about how we relate with one another, principally how we relate with those that we're around the most, which ultimately is our family. And so the charge that Paul says 
is it's worthy to, to walk in a way that's, that's love. And this is what it looks like. And, and I pray this, that I don't want to have to figure out what love looks like and then act like love. I just want to be love so I'm never even thinking about it again. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't want to just... Okay, that's what humility looks like, so I got to try to be humble. I just want to be humble. Just work it in me, God, so that humility is what comes out. The gentleness is what comes out. And that's what Paul is calling us to. He says a worthy walk, a walk that's worthy of the calling is a walk that's humble, that's gentle, that that is patient, it bears long, that, that bearing with one another. You know, he wouldn't have put that in there if, it, if somebody wasn't going to rub you wrong sometimes. And this is, man, this is a word for the church. The fact that the church does violence to itself and, and says things like, well, that's just enough. I've just had enough. I'm done. I'm finito. I'm done. Well, that's just not what the Bible says. And I, I always encourage people, here's what I always tell them. I said, listen, you should give up on them when you would want someone to give up on you. And if you do the math on that, you realize I would probably never want someone to give up on me. And so we're called to bear long with people. And, and here's what I, I would say. Even when people sever from you, even when they just leave, just get rid of you, right? Just friends and relationships, just done. I'm done with you. There's still got to be a place in your heart that's willing to forgive and welcome back if they return. It's called love. Love isn't just towards those that are nice to you. Love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you and abuse you. That's love. It's, it's, it's loving yourself, loving your neighbor, and then loving your enemy even. I mean, this Christianity thing's real. This is real. It's not for the faint of heart. Patient, bearing with one another. And then this, endeavoring, or another translation says, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Peace binds us together. What does that mean? That we've got to be peacemakers. We've got to go for the win for both people. We've got to figure out how to get out of ourselves and come together and, and, and get forgiveness and, and come in humility and, and prefer one another. So peace binds us together through the power of love. And he says, be diligent to preserve the unity. Endeavor to, be diligent to. And, and what does that mean? That means this, that I'm always looking for what can unite us and I'm never going after what divides us. Some people, their whole ministry in life is figuring out how to divide people. Christians, they have these ministries where, you know, it's like they just nitpick every little thing and they're not like us. They've got this wrong and that wrong. And here's the bottom line. The common denominator of Jesus Christ, loving Jesus with your whole heart. Man, if you love Jesus with your whole heart, you're on my team. I'm on your team. We're on each other's team. We're part of the same family. The, the clear command of Scripture is find what you can unite on and fight for it. Why? Because diabolos, the word that we get devil from, it's the word that means one who divides. 
Sometimes the greatest spiritual warfare you can do is just make amends because you're doing the exact opposite of the Antichrist spirit that would cause us to divide and separate and be offended and, and, and be apart. That's not God. Amen. It's not God. He, he wants us to be together. He wants us to be united. And he wants us to be diligent to preserve unity. He wants us to be diligent to go for, for peace. How do we go for peace together? How do we work through this thing and make it right? So often, sometimes, you know, we get in a problem with somebody and, you know, you just, it's not right. You know it's not right. You talk to them and you know it's not right. And you know what? You just go your other direction. You just go, well, I just can't get on with them. And you just leave it. And that thing where, it, you know, maybe it was a, a level four or level five problem. If you leave that problem unaddressed, you walk away, that thing grows into a level eight or a level nine. No, nobody's ever had that happen to them, right? Where you walk away and all of a sudden you replay the conversation in your head. And all of a sudden, what did they mean by that? I saw how their body language changed when we were talking. I mean, that one little look they had, I know what they meant by that look. Yeah, I'm never going to. I mean, the thing just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger the more that we leave it alone. Am I, am I preaching good yet? This is, this is central to Christianity. Bond of peace. Be diligent about it. What does that mean? That means we've got to come back together. We've got to work through this. We've got to get understanding. We've got to prefer one another. We've got to humble ourselves. Be gentle. We've got to forgive. We've got to bear with each other. Even if we don't see it eye to eye, I can still love you. Hello. I don't have to have perfect agreement with you to love you. Right? This new concept in this generation is if I disagree with you, I hate you. That's completely false. Just ask my wife. <laughs> she loves me. She doesn't always agree with me and vice versa, but we love each other. We're crazy about each other. But anybody that's married, you get it, that you don't have to agree on every little thing. I mean, that's just, that's just sometimes impossible because you're different people. You got different ideas, different stuff going on in there. You don't see it. You don't understand it the same. But you know what? I can still love you even if I don't fully know what you're saying. I can love you. I can prefer you even if I don't really get it. There's room for that in the cross. There's room for that in the gospel. Amen. This is what Paul's hammering. Why is he hammering this point? Because it's Jews and Gentiles together, and they've never been together before. Does that make sense? He's got to nail this issue of love and what it looks like to walk it out, because these folks have so many differences, they don't even know what their differences are. Their differences are different. I mean, they just are completely separated. And so love causes you to get in there, to make peace. And making peace isn't ignoring the problem. It's actually getting in the problem and working it through. Some people, I call them, they're peacekeepers. But peacekeepers are not peacemakers. Keeping the peace is, I don't want to say anything because you know they could get upset. That's no good. Because ultimately, there's a volatile problem right there that if you touch it, it's going to explode. So you're walking around on eggshells. You're not taking care of business. A peacemaker gets down into it and works it through. Does that make sense? That's diligent to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. 
This works in so many ways. This works in our families. This works in our, our work relationships, our church relationships. This works across uh, cultures and across denominations. Th- th- this is Christianity. This is what, it, what it's supposed to look like. All right, so then he goes, keep, be diligent, keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he gives us this treatise. He goes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Let me just work through this real quickly. So now he's going to describe how we have this unity in the spirit. And so first he says it's, there's one body and one spirit. And the point is, you and I are a part of the body together. We're, we're not in separate bodies. Uh, there, let me just say it a different way. There is no white church, black church, Asian church, Latino church. It's one church. There, there is no Jew church, Gentile church. No, we're one church. One body. There is no male church, no female church. It's one body that we're all in together, one body. And then he goes, and there's one spirit. Now, why would he need to tell us that there's one spirit right after he tells us there's one body? The point is this, the Holy Spirit is on the inside of you and is on the inside of me. And the Holy Spirit is on the inside of every believer. And the Holy Spirit is not divided against himself ever. He's never schizophrenic. He's not multiple personalities. The Holy Spirit is completely at peace in the Godhead, united within himself, and he is the one that actually brings us together in the body. Does that make sense? So he goes, it's one body, one spirit, and we're all together in one body and one spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who's never divided. And then he goes, and, and, and simply, we have one hope, all of us together, of our calling, our calling together. And our calling together is this, that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. He's going to rule and reign heaven and earth together, and we're going to be there with him, worshiping and ruling and reigning. Amen. This is our calling with Christ. We all have the same one. Sure, we've got a little job, a little gift that we do right here, right now for a few, few years. But in a minute, the transition of the ages is coming. Jesus is returning, and we're all called into his calling. We're all all commissioned unto that end, the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the Lord Jesus, one hope of our calling. There's one Lord. Jesus is only one. There's one faith. There's only one way to believe in Jesus. It's the power of his blood that's bought salvation for all of us. Nothing that we could do, any of our works could get us in. It's, It's what Paul's already laid out in the gospel, one faith. There's one baptism. Somebody goes, well, wait, what, how, bat, how, so how, water? This is a term, immersion. And what's he talking about? Yes, he could be implying water, but he's really talking about being baptized into Christ, being immersed into Jesus. There's one baptism in which we are all put inside of Jesus. One body, one baptism. We're baptized into Christ, into his body. And he says, we've got one father, He's above all, through all, and in you all. And the point is this, all of us have the same dad, he's the same one, and he's in all of us, and none of us can claim 
uniqueness or separatism because we're one together in Jesus. Amen. Man, it's powerful when you let the truths of that settle on your soul. And I know for me, just again, like I told you this week, man, it was just convicting. Just convicting. Just my lack of gentleness, my lack of humility at times. And I go, Lord, I just want to be a man that's so possessed by love. I don't want to just be able to preach it real good. I want to walk this thing out. I want to live this thing. Amen. All right, so then let's look at this next section, verse 7. Wow, I'm doing better than I thought I was going to do. Well, I mean, just looking at it, it's, it is 10 hours of teaching, but we'll see what happens now. All right, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. All right. So there's a psalm that he's quoting there. And in your notes, it's in capital letters. It's Psalm 16, verse 18. And so Paul's referencing that quote. And so that's why some of the language can seem a little cryptic or a little unusual. Let's walk through it. So he says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift or as Christ has decided to give it. What does that even mean? That just means this, that every person, every believer has an endowment of grace that Jesus has given them. Those graces manifest in giftedness, okay? Different uh, ways that you and I are gifted by the grace of God. This grace is not specifically talking about salvation grace, the grace that was brought to us at the cross and at Jesus' crucifixion and, and shedding of his blood and resurrection. This grace is the grace by which we actually have abilities and, and, and we have, we have a gifts that we're able to employ. That's what he's talking about here. And so he said this, when he ascended, he led captivity and he gave gifts to men. So at the resurrection of Jesus, there was something that happened where the Lord put in place this, this giftedness and these graces that he was releasing to the body, not just to those that were alive on the earth then, but to those that would live after them. So at the resurrection, Jesus gave gifts. He gave you gifts. He gave you gifts. He gave me gifts. And, and as God was looking through the history of time, he was seeing you and I, and he was saying, I know exactly how I want the body to fit, I know exactly what giftedness I want the body to have. And he was putting gifts in people. Your destiny in God is about walking in the grace that God has given you to walk in. Some in this manner, some in that. And, and that's awesome because God hasn't forgotten anybody. Our challenge is we see others operating in their area of giftedness and graces. And oftentimes we, we well, we covet that. We want to be them. But guess what? Don't be them, be you. Because you got stuff from Jesus in you that you're supposed to walk in. And, and what's further is we need you to walk in your grace. The body needs you in your gift doing what you do by the grace of God for the body. We need that. 
We can't have anybody on the sideline. We can't have anybody not in the game. We can't have anybody looking at somebody else's gift and going, well, they're just better than me. No, you do you. Do the grace of God that's in you. Do that. Because that's what the body needs, and he's going to talk about that in just a minute. So here's the thing. He now gets into this interesting discussion of him ascending and descending. And this is a long theological teaching with many different aspects to it. Commentators vary on even what this means. I'll tell you what I believe it means. I believe it means this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he descended into Hades, not hellfire, into Hades where the Old Testament saints were waiting. They were waiting and believing for the Messiah to come. He hadn't come yet, so they couldn't believe on him. And he preached the gospel to them. And then it says when he he led those captives, he led them in his train, is what Psalm 68 says. He led those that he preached to who were waiting. Then he said this, he goes, I am Messiah to come. And they believed on him, and he took those Old Testament saints, and he led them to the throne of God. Now, it's in that same encounter as he's leading this this captive host to the throne of God that he's releasing gifts into the body of Christ. He led them captive, and and he gave gifts to men. And so it says this, that he ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And Jesus said it even at his ascent. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go, and so there's this deputization of the body of Christ, this this giving of gifts to the body of Christ. And then what he's going to do in verse 11 is this. Paul's going to tell us some of the gifts that were given to men. This is not an exhaustive list. This is a specific list because this list of gifts, these gifts are the ones that are responsible for seeing the body of Christ come to fullness in love. That's the conversation we're having, right? What does it look like for the body to come to fullness of love? He goes, he gave gifts when he ascended, and some he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Does that make sense? So here's what we have. These are called the five-fold ministry gifts. Um, Different people refer to them as different things, but But what we would see is these would be those that are elders or leaders in in the body of Christ. And so each one of these gifts has a different function, but they have all together the same purpose, and the same purpose is ultimately to see the church come to the fullness of love and come to maturity in Christ. Now, like I said earlier, I do not have time to walk through the gift ministry of an apostle or the gift ministry of a prophet or an evangelist, pastor and teacher. Perhaps we'll do that at another time. I've got an entire hour and a half teaching on just what each of these are. Each of them is like an hour and a half. And so, uh, but they're different gifts. I will say this, one thing I do want to mention is that oftentimes in church nowadays, everybody is called a pastor. I just want to propose that they ain't all pastors. Somehow we just teetered right on over to everybody's going to be a pastor. We've got the pastor, uh, the young adults, and the youth pastor, and we've got the, the senior pastor, well, we've got the associate pastor, we've got the executive pastor, we've got the pastor of the redheaded people, <laughs> you know, we've we got the pastor of coffee, I'm the media pastor, I'm the marketing pastor, I'm not making this stuff up, <laughs> this is real. 
And I, and I would suggest that they maybe aren't all pastors. Just because you work for the church doesn't make you a pastor. If we want to take that logic and apply it everywhere, the guy that's you know, doing the cleaning, he's the pastor of janitorial ministries. Like, that's not all pastoral ministry. Uh, that word pastor is the term shepherd. It, it just simply means tending the flock, looking out for the souls of those that God has entrusted in the body. But, but there's other gifts that go into the body and causing the body to grow and, and apostolic and, 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 and prophetic and, and evangelistic and teaching. All those have to be in the body for the body to continue to grow and to be healthy. Does that make sense? So our, our, our fixation on the term pastor, I think, um, is maybe not as biblical as we imagine it to be. We don't really use titles. And the reason why is this. People get so hung up on titles that they, they just miss people. And any one of these that's one of these gift ministries, they're just people. They're just men and women just like you and I. Just, you know, just because they have a gift in a certain area doesn't mean that, that they're, they're superhuman or, or, or whatever. You know, and sometimes I think we, we've faltered when we've put too much emphasis uh, on individual leaders you know, and thought, well, that person is so anointed and so you know, like exalted. And really just a person just like you and me, put their pants on one leg at a time just like you and I. And so we're all members of the body together. You know, you know Paul talks about how you got to give honor to whom honor is due and all that, but I think we can take that too far sometimes. All right. Let's go ahead and get into this last section, verse 12. So he says, he's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. There's a key in this section. That's the key may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. If you ever wanted to know the operational statement of how the church is supposed to function, it's right here. The church is supposed to function in this manner with those gift ministries calling the church into this function and into this growth and maturity. This is how the church life is supposed to work. So let's just work through it. So he says, we've got these gift ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their job is to equip the saints for several different things. One of them is the works of ministry. Their job is also to edify the body of Christ so that we would come to a unity of the faith. This is the job of the gift ministries, the teaching ministries. They're supposed to be pouring in to the saints to cause the saints to grow up into maturity so that the, that the church then can actually put their hands on the, the gospel plow, so to speak. You know, the progress of the gospel and the progress of the kingdom was never entrusted just to 
a certain ministry group. You know, we had the apostles, and the apostles were supposed to teach the rest of the people to obey everything that Jesus commanded, which includes doing the works of the ministry. And so the point is this. Oftentimes, we make this separation between clergy and laity, and we think, well, they're the real ministers, and these guys are sort of the not real ministers, and it's just not like that. The works of the ministry are to take place through the body in many, many different capacities. Amen. What we've, what we've made a mistake is, is we've kind of made like the, the, the pastor or the leader or whatever, we've made him like the, the you know, MVP on, on the basketball team and just pass that guy the ball, pass that guy the ball. Just give, man, let him shoot a three. You know, we've just like try to get that guy the ball all the time. Like he's supposed to score all the points. That's not how it's supposed to be, beloved. The church is supposed to be walking in good works, which Jesus prepared beforehand, that we should all walk in, right? And the church is supposed to be making disciples, and the church is supposed to be sharing the faith and, and, and sharing the gospel with people. The church is supposed to be doing works of ministry in all sorts of different capacities, compassion and mercy ministries, all sorts of outreach, all sorts of inreach and care, all those things are supposed to be the body ministering in the fullness of her gifts, not just those five ministry areas. And so the point is, those five teaching and, and, and ministry gifts are supposed to help the body to be able to step into their gifts and graces. That's how it's supposed to work, for the equipping of the saints for the works of the ministry. I mean, you can just see this in a very simple way, even in what happens on our platform in our services. And I would just tell you, church services aren't the only place that the ministry goes forth. It goes forth all over the place, all sorts of ways, through people's personal lives, in the grocery store and in the house and in the business marketplace, all sorts of places. But, but just think of it this way. If we were always passing the ball to, you know, Gabe, me, you know, the executive team, then we would have some really rough worship services. I mean, Gabe's kind of good, but nobody's like Lauren Funderburk. Nobody's like Joy Bullard. Nobody's like Caleb Andrews. Thank you, Lord. I mean, I taught him everything he knows, but man, he's just taking it so much further. My point is, it's obvious, they're gifted and graced in a certain way. Nobody's like Clinton. Clinton's like Clinton. He's got a gift and a grace that I could never have. Well, that's just a one small example. Somehow we tend to think in the church, if it's not happening on the platform, it's not ministry. No. You've got gifts and graces in so many different areas that I don't ever know anything about. And the Lord wants you equipped to step into those areas. And so what he does is he says this, he says that the, the, those gift ministries are for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry, and the, the, those gift ministries are for the edifying of the body of Christ, and the outcome of you being edified is this, we come to a unity of faith and a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, okay? And I've thought about this passage, the unity of the faith, and I've heard it taught different ways, but at the end of the day... I think it simply means a unity of our commitment to the faith. 
that we would all give ourselves to Jesus with the same abandonment. Because it can't mean that you and the person that just got saved and the person that's been in the faith 50 years are all on the exact same knowledge playing field, right? Some people are like, did he, like right now, I'm preaching apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Somebody goes, is it an apostle or an epistle? Which one is it again? Yeah, the epistle is the letter, the apostle is the gift ministry. And, and so, just in case you needed that, but there's no way you get people that are brand new and people that are 50 years in to know all the same stuff, right? And, and, and tr- truly, the diversity of the body of Christ, uh, you know, one guy sees it this way and, and another guy sees it that way, and on the non-essentials, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, there's so many non-essentials, and, and there's so much the Lord's going to fill in for us when, when he comes and releases clear revelation, he teaches us his ways. That, there's a bunch of non-essentials that we're going get, to get cleaned up and cleared up. And that's okay. And so somebody said, you know, unity of faith doesn't mean unity of the doctrine. And I go, yeah, I think that's probably right. There's lots of room in terms of, you know, in what we believe for differences of opinion. I think that's okay. But what I believe he's really saying is the unity of the faith is when the body grows up together and has the same commitment and heart to the Lord Jesus. We have a a united faith. No matter what you're looking at across the body of Christ, there's this place where the church has grown up and the church loves Jesus with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength. I believe the unity of the faith is when the church actually embodies the first and second commandment. We love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Does that make sense? Unity of the faith that we, we give ourselves to Jesus with, with abandonment. And, and then he says, to the knowledge of the Son of God. Guys, this is what the fivefold ministry is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be equipping the saints in the knowledge of God, that we would all grow up and mature in who God is and what we know about him and what we think about him, how we love him. And so I see unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God coming together. And then he says this phrase, to a perfect man, that just simply means till we're mature, till we're mature. Do you know the body has a lot of growing up to do? We do. I do. We do here at IHOP, but we do across the churches, across the denominations. We got a lot of growing up to do. And I would just say this, I'm super encouraged in the movement of unity that's happening through one race, over a hundred and whatever it is, 15 churches that we've got right now. And there is a maturity that's happening that's absolutely beautiful. I've never seen it happen in this region in 20, almost 25 years of ministry. That is the maturing, the maturing of the body. It's a beautiful thing that's happening right now. Nobody cares who's getting the credit. We all want Jesus to get the credit. Amen. To a, a mature man or a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is that, that what Jesus wants the church to be, to the measure that Jesus wants through the fullness of him indwelling the church. And then he goes on to say that we should no longer be children. Do you see this is us growing up? And he identifies children as being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning craftiness of deceitful men who plot these things. In other words, they teach stuff that's divisive. They teach stuff that doesn't accord with sound doctrine. And the role of the gift ministries is to to cause the church to grow up out of that so you're not thrown around every time you hear a new wind of doctrine. 
Let me just see a show of hands. If you've been saved over 20 years, raise your hand. Let's just see. Look across the room. Lots of people. Lots and lots of people. All right, put your hands down. Now, if you've been saved 20 years, you know that in the body of Christ, there are so many different doctrines, and they don't, they're not really new. They just get new emphases at different times. Like the thing that came out maybe three, four, five years ago with false grace, and it just got so much energy on it. That's just repackaged. And anybody that's been around 20, 25 years, you know that that was going around late 70s and early 80s. And it's just a, a reboot of an old deception. And so this is the thing. There's always winds of doctrines that are flowing around, flying around. Part of the job of, of the, the five-fold ministry is to, to cause the church to grow so we're not just thrown around by every wind of doctrine. And, and, and then what Paul says here is the way that we're supposed to deal with that is by pointing out all the false doctrines all the time. No. How does he say to deal with it? Speaking the truth in love. And I love that because in, in the body, when we turn the light on, guess what leaves? Darkness. When we speak truth, guess what gets undone? Deception. And so he says that we're to speak the truth in love. And the point is, in love means for the service and the benefit of others, not for yourself, and to do it with a heart that's gentle and kind and servant-oriented. But at the end of the day, it's also no matter what the cost. Because if I love you, I'll tell you the truth, even if you may not like me for it. Right? That works in all sorts of ways in interpersonal relationships. You see somebody that's got a little something on their nose? Don't let them go through life like that. Mm -mm. Hey, man, you got a little something going on right there. Right? You're not telling them that to shame them. You're like, hey, I just don't want you to have to, you know, get that in front of people. But, but, but that's really how we're all supposed to operate in love. And in love doesn't ever judge a person when they're speaking truth. Just says, look, I'm, I got issues too, man, but I just want to call you into this. You know, I just see this area, man. I, 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 want to just, I want to affirm you and call you out of that right there. I want to help you to grow. That's, that's why I'm speaking truth to you, because I love you and I want to help you to grow. And sometimes that costs us, doesn't it? Sometimes that's a risk, isn't it? That's called making peace. Speaking the truth in love, that's how we make peace. All right, we grow up by speaking the truth in love. And then this last piece, G, H, and I, they all go together. He says that we grow up into Christ from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effecting, effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of love in itself. So these last three, G-H and I, I put them together. So simple, simple thoughts. The whole body is connected to Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus has connected us each to, to one another. We're all connected together. And then each of us has graces that's been given to us that we're supposed to employ. And when we employ the gifts of God and the graces of God, the whole body benefits. The whole body grows and matures and grows up in love. 
And so that's how it's supposed to work, not just in, in local church environments, for sure in the local church, that every part is supposed to be doing its share, employing you know, whatever gifts and graces that we have, we employ them together. We utilize our gifts and graces so that we together can grow up into Christ. Does that make sense? And, and so the body's incomplete when, when the parts aren't providing what they're able to. Each part is supposed to be providing what it's able to. And so in America, one of our challenges is this, and I'll just end with this, that we're, we're used to an entertainment culture. We're used to showing up and watching something happen and then just, you know, plopping down whatever is like our movie. We plop down our 1250, watch the movie, we get it and leave, right? Or we go to the restaurant, we eat the food, they serve us, and, and then we leave because we're not part of those environments. We're used to that, that being served and that entertainment culture. It's a consumer Christianity. And I would just tell you, consumer Christianity is killing us. Glory. I'm speaking the truth in love today. It's killing us because the body doesn't get to actually play. Christianity isn't about a couple superstars that get to shoot all the shots. No, it's about one star. All the rest of us are on his team, and he's given all of us graces and abilities that we employ together unto the fullness of his calling. And we grow up into the fullness of him who is Christ, and we walk in the fullness of our graces, and we walk in the fullness of love. That's how this thing is supposed to be. And so that whole consumer mentality of showing up and, you know, it's wild to me in the church. Just think about this. Show up, watch other people do music, listen to somebody else preach, leave, and we've gone to church. That's weird. We're the church. The church isn't a movie. The church isn't an entertainment. Whoa, come on out. The church isn't an entertainment deal. The church is a living, growing people, growing together in Christ, every part doing its share, all of us growing up together into him. Amen. And so every joint has to supply for that to happen. Isn't that right? Now, I'll just tell you, I am setting you up, but it just happened by accident. When we merge in a few weeks with with Newbridge, there's going to be all sorts of opportunities for you to serve. Some of you are already serving in a a great capacity here, but we're going to need lots more help. The the numbers of just our community, immediately they go over 1,000 when you add their community and our community together. And so we have a, a lot more opportunity for the body to employ its giftedness. And so we need you. I need you, you need me, we need each other, and we need to work together so that we can grow together. Amen. Amen and amen. All right, let's stand.